Matthew chapter 4. On July 4th, 1854, England executed one of its most notorious criminals, a man by the name of Charlie Peace. And this well-known criminal, they had planned to hang in London. Now, the Anglican Church has a ceremony for pretty much anything you could ever imagine, including if you're going to execute someone. And so, as per the tradition and the practice at that time, Charlie Peace is being led to the gallows. They got an Anglican priest that's walking beside him, reading from their prayer book. And this is what he read. This Anglican priest says, those who die without Christ experience hell, which is the pain of forever dying without the release, which death itself can bring. He's reading those words and Charlie Peace, this infamous criminal, is walking to his death and Charlie Peace stops. He turns and he looks at that Anglican priest and he shouts at him, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? This had never happened before. The Anglican priest shuffling his prayer book. He's like, what? He says, well, uh, I, 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 I suppose I do. And Peace said, well, I don't. But if I did, quote, unquote, this is what he said. I'd get down on my hands and knees and I'd crawl all over Great Britain, even if it were paved with pieces of glass, if I could rescue one person from what you just told me. If I really believe that, this is how I would behave. I would live completely different if I believed what you just told me, that people eternally perish apart from a saving relationship with Christ. You see, Charlie Peace, he completely understood the message. He just didn't believe. I'd like to ask you. Do you know the message about Christ? And do you really believe it? You know, we never want to get into a place in our life where we're just singing songs. Oh, that time of the week, Sunday morning, sing some songs about God. Or we just kind of mouth some words and we say some things, but we don't really think about what we're saying. My question I'd like to ask you is, do you really know and believe that people eternally perish apart from a life-saving relationship with Christ? Let me tell you someone who absolutely, to the core of his being, believes that. Jesus. Jesus Christ. The God-man. He absolutely knows it has been eternally decreed that apart from a life saving relationship with himself, people will eternally perish. And that is why he has come to this earth. If you have any question like, well, why did Jesus come? Why do we make such a big deal about it? Why are there churches everywhere? Why is Christianity the fastest growing religion in the world? Why is that? It's because of this truth. That Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners, among which I am the foremost of all. If you are a sinner, you've offended God, you've lived life on your own, you who have been wonderfully fashioned by God have decided to live life on your own. All of that, the attitude, our words, our actions, anything that goes against what he has said, this is how to live, it's sin. And God has provided a savior to rescue us from our sins because Christ himself has paid the penalty in our place. And Jesus, when he came to this earth, 
he actually implemented a strategy. We could call it the Savior's strategy of how he was going to go about his ministry. There is a particular plan in which he followed. Jesus didn't just arrive and just kind of haphazardly just show up and kind of like, well, I think I'll say a few things here and do a miracle here. And, and then, then there's the cross. There was a strategic plan that he was following step by step. It is a, such a profound plan that it is to be the plan of the church. God actually fully intends that Christ's people will implement his plan. And so I want to ask you, do you know it? Do you know the Savior's strategy? Do you know the essence of Christ's ministry, what he was accomplishing and what he desires us to do? Jesus lived it. Accomplishment. The early church followed it. The church today, we're supposed to follow this exact same strategy. We don't have to like, huh, I don't know. We'll just make up something. He actually has this, a plan for us to follow. And I, I, for one, I desperately want to know what that plan is. I think all of us do. And we don't have to guess. It's actually written for us in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. We actually see this the Savior actually implementing his strategy to bring about the rescue of the world. What does that look like? Well, you find it in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, the essence of Christ's ministry. And as we saw last week, it begins with engaging the lost. Look at verse 12, chapter 4. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. So here is the situation here. John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, he is calling out for, to people and he has a message. Anybody remember what that message was? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from your sin. There is a brokenness, a remorse from a life that is separated from God and a self-centered lifestyle. Repent. It means literally turn 180 degrees, not turn 360 degrees. You're back in the same sin. No, it's 180 degrees and come and trust in God for his king is coming. The kingdom is near. Well, what happened here is that he had been apprehended. He'd been taken into custody. Herod Antipas, according to the Josephus, uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, Herod Antipas, he is actually the ruler up in the northern part, Galilee and Perea. He actually has John the Baptist incarcerated. What was written is for political reasons, because he was afraid that John the Baptist would create an insurrection, that there would be people that would become uh, kind of get a, the idea that they could overthrow the Roman Empire. He's calling people. He's banding them together. Everybody's looking for God and this Messiah. And Herod said, no, we're not doing that anymore. You're gone. But there was another reason, I think, uh, probably a more profound reason why he actually locked John up. As you see here, he took him into custody. And that is because John the Baptist confronted Herod Antipas on his sin. See, Herod Antipas had married his niece, a woman by the name of Herodias. That, that's not so good, but Herod's niece, uh, Herodias, was actually had been married to his brother, Philip. It was a clear cut case of adultery. And you're going to find the details and and see what exactly actually happens and what Herodias thought about John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 14. But John the Baptist confronts Herod about this. And he has him locked up, captured, put in prison. 
It's at this time that Jesus then withdrew into Galilee. Apparently he had been down in the southern part where this takes place. That's where John the Baptist was conducting his ministry along the Jordan River in the wilderness area there. Jesus then goes and he withdraws to Galilee. Now, don't get the idea that, whoa, okay, Jesus sees the heat's being turned up, so he's going to hightail it out of there. Actually, Jesus then goes and plants himself at the heart of Herod Antipas's kingdom and his jurisdiction. And so you see in verse 13, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Nephtali. So Jesus had been living in Nazareth. He moves to Capernaum, which is on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And he sets up there. This is a big uh, fishing village. The other thing that's significant about Capernaum, it's on this Via Maris, the way to the sea. This is a major trade route. And all these Gentile travelers and people moving throughout the Roman Empire, many of them will come through there and come through this city that he now sets up camp. Who will, this will be his home base for the rest of his ministry up in the northern part. This will take him all the way uh, through chapter 18 of Matthew, where he sets up in Capernaum. He's on this thoroughfare, and, and Matthew points this out. Even though Jesus is proclaiming himself and showing himself to be the Messiah to the Jews, God very much has in mind that his message and his life is for the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people as well. And so Jesus sets up camp in Capernaum and notice what he says in verse 14. This was actually prophesied. Verse 14. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah, the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death upon them, a light dawned when when. When Matthew is quoting Matthew, uh, Isaiah chapter nine, verses one and two, immediately in people's minds, they would recognize that this is also a passage that strongly speaks about the Messiah because they know what follows. If I said, for instance, you guys know what Romans 623 says, don't you? For the wages of sin is death. And what well, does anybody know what the end of that is? Ooh, really? No one? But the. Oh, okay. Fellowship Bible Church, here we are. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Okay? We know that. I know you guys are just being real shy this morning here, and I don't want to make my neighbor feel bad by focalizing the rest of the verse like that, so I thought I'd sit still and quiet. You see, we know exactly what follows, because we're very familiar with that verse. Well, so did the people, the Jewish people. When you started quoting Isaiah chapter 9, they knew immediately what followed that this one also spoke of one who is going to remove the oppressor's yoke, that this would come with the birth of this promised child who is wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. He was the one who would reign as David's forever son. This is what Isaiah nine spoke of. And so when Matthew quotes this, all of this is pointing that this Jesus, this Jesus is the promised Messiah. And so Jesus sets up camp and he goes to the people who are what? Living in darkness, who are in danger, who have fear, who are living in hopelessness, because that is the Savior's strategy. You actually go where the lost people are. You actually engage the lost. And so that is what he does. He goes to a place where it is extremely dark. There's this is at the far fringe of the of Israel 
the Jews actually in the southern part despised the people up north because they had kind of intermixed with all these Gentiles. I mean, how could you not? They're everywhere. The Romans had a huge garrison and a force up there. There are Roman soldiers everywhere. Here's this major trade route and every kind of person uh, that walked the face of the earth would come through there. And this is where Jesus sets up camp, where he is going to conduct most of his ministry. Why does he do that? Because engaging the lost is the Savior's strategy. And if you're going to reach people, you've got to be able to touch them. By the way, the strategy has not changed at all. This is the strategy. You and I who know Christ, we're called to engage the lost. When you come to church on Sunday morning, we are only here for a short time to corporately worship God, to just pour out our praise before him. We're here to be instructed and have his word open. We're to be once again renewed. We're here to confess sin. We're here to celebrate communion. We're here to remember Christ crucified and risen. But when we walk out those doors, we walk out into our mission field. And frankly, friends, there are people surrounding us that are living in darkness. They have no hope. They're living in fear. They have no idea who God is. And we are to engage them because after all, that's what Jesus did. And aren't you eternally grateful for the Christians who actually did that in your life? I think of people that started engaging me in high school. Noel, and Mary, when I moved to the University of Oregon, I had people like Doug and Frank. They actually moved into my house and they shared Jesus Christ in a very real way with me. I got to see the light of Christ and Christ's love and their actions and their words and their way of life. You see, you and I, we got to engage those that do not know our Savior. That is the strategy. Yeah, it's going to take some guts sometimes. You're going to have to move out of your comfort zone. But Christianity isn't, let's just create a club. We're going to build this huge fortress. And we're just going to get people in here. We're going to kind of protect them. And we're never going to ever enter into the world. Actually, we need to engage the lost with the life-saving and changing message of Jesus Christ. After all, it is the savior strategy. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Let me give you another aspect of the savior's strategy. Not only is he engaging the lost, but a major aspect of his ministry was exhorting the people. In fact, you see him doing that in verse 17. He moves in to where the people are living in darkness. And then verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach. He began to proclaim and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This one sentence kind of captures the essence of Christ's message that you find as he goes all the way through Matthew chapter 16, verse 20, where he's instructing his disciples. He is calling people to repent, to turn from your sin, to have a brokenness about your waywardness and to receive him. Because when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's the king and he's standing in their midst. Repent, turn from your sin and trust Christ. It's it's more than an academic change of mind. It is it's not like, well, I don't think a little bit differently than about Jesus. It is to have a brokenness accompanied by a belief in him. And he is the king. He's the promised king of David. And when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's literally pointing to the fact that 
But if you keep as we keep going through this, that he's pointing out that I am the Messiah and the king believe in me. Now, it's interesting that they would say kingdom of heaven. Jesus says the exact same thing that John the Baptist says, kingdom of heaven. There's a reason why they say kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. You see, the Jewish people never, ever wanted to take God's name in vain. And so very early on in their tradition, they developed this practice where instead of saying God's name, Yahweh, they would use a euphemism. So they would say kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. And so that is in that same practice here that Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven. But to the Jewish mind, when they would say that, they would recognize that they're speaking of God himself, that God is near. And so Jesus, a major aspect of his ministry, and we're going to see this as we move through the Gospel of Matthew, is to teach, to exhort, to encourage, correct, to call out, to call people to himself. And that is why teaching is such a primary has such a primary emphasis in Christian ministry is because it was true of Jesus. When Jesus came, he taught the people how to live, how to experience forgiveness, how to know joy, the reality of sin, the true essence and nature of hell, the grandeur of heaven, what relationship with God is all about. How are these things going to be learned? You'll teach them. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He begins to preach. And the essence of his message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let me give you one other, the third emphasis of Jesus ministry. I think if I think we're pretty good on this first one here, we are to be engaging the lost. I think most Christians go, yeah, that's right. That is right. We have been saved to serve the Lord and we're to engage the people that don't know Christ with the life changing message of his gospel. I think most of us would go, that's right. We as the body of Christ, the church, we are to be involved in exhorting the people, training them, teaching them, coming alongside them. Yeah, we're, that's right. But this third aspect of Jesus strategy is the one I think the church is, for the most part, set aside. And that is we are to be equipping the disciples. Jesus came and he gave the lost. When they saw Jesus and his care for people and his life, they saw what the light of God really looks like. They heard his words. In fact, Jesus could gather crowds in the thousands. And he did. And we'll actually see different accounts of that where he actually addresses the multitudes. But there's something that Jesus actually devoted most of his time to during his earthly ministry. And that is equipping the disciples. You can actually see what this looks like beginning in verse 18. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, okay, he's kind of in his new hometown area, Capernaum, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, Peter and Andrew, two brothers, you're familiar with their names. Now, this isn't the first time they've seen Jesus. Luke actually records that Jesus actually encounters them in Judea. Andrew has actually been a follower of John the Baptist. He actually had been sitting under his teaching, listening to him. We're not sure if Peter was a part of, of John the Baptist group or not. Very possible. This is not the first time that they will actually encounter Jesus. They actually knew who he was. They had seen him. They'd likely heard his message. Word was going about. Jesus, if you remember from the Gospel of Luke, had been living in Nazareth. They actually, the people of Nazareth, put the run on Jesus. 
They're like, hey, if you're the Messiah, we want you to start doing the miracles that we hear you doing in Capernaum. Okay, so Jesus is starting to get known. When he encounters Peter and Andrew, they are engaged in their occupation that they had been for a lifetime. Likely this had been a family business that had been perhaps perhaps for many generations. They're fishermen. What do fishermen do? You fish. And Jesus then on this particular instance, verse 19, he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, imagine this, you know, here's these men. They spend a lifetime of casting their nets out and catching fish. And if they don't catch fish, they don't have money. And so they're really dependent upon this fishing industry, you know, like many men. Their identity was perhaps wrapped up in their careers. Hey, who are you? I'm a fisherman. This fishing is all they really knew. It was it was probably the most important thing in their life. And Jesus comes up to them and he just simply says this. Come follow me. Now, for a Jewish person reading this, this would be like, whoa, that is completely different. You see, normally this is how it worked. Normally, if you were a rabbi, a wise teacher, people would come up to you and would appeal to you and ask, can I study with you? Can I sit under you? Can I learn from you? Jesus has a whole new pattern. He isn't standing there waiting for people to come to him. He actually goes to them and he actually calls these people, which would be rather unlikely fishermen to come. I want you to follow me and notice what they did. He, he says, I want you to come follow me. I will make you fishers of men. In verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now, this is this is pretty fascinating what Jesus is doing. First of all, he take he takes something they know very well. Fishing. He says, listen, I want you to come follow me. Because I'm going to train you how to be fishermen, but really fishers of men. I'm going to change your complete orientation. And he casts a vision, a vision for a whole new way of life. He says, I am going to take you from where you're at and through my leadership in your life and through my presence, my Holy Spirit in your life. I'm going to take you to a point where you are going to be fishers of men. And he casts this vision and he says, I want you to. Follow me and notice what he says in verse 19. I don't want you to miss this. He says, I will make you fishers of men. I will transform you. I will do this work. I will shape your heart. I'm going to develop your soul. I am going to give you a a desire. I am the one who will actually give you my spirit to make this possible. But if you follow me, I will. I will absolutely do this. I will make you fishers of men. And so he gives them this invitation. And by the way, this is the process of discipleship. It begins with a call. He calls them and then he's going to instruct them. In fact, that's what's going to happen in chapter five. He's going to start instructing them, teaching them. And then he is going to involve them. Not only will they be with Jesus and they're going to hang out with him, they're going to hear him. But Jesus will then start involving them in the work that he is doing. And then He will actually die for them. And then three days later, as the resurrected God man, he comes back, he enters into their life 
And he, he commissions them to go and make disciples of all the nations. He actually promises them, I will give you my Holy Spirit. I am with you always. I will make this a reality. But I'm going to take you from where you are, a common fisherman, and I'm going to build where you're going to be on the foundation stones of the church. I will teach you and I will make you fishers of men, but you must follow me. Really, it's an invitation to leave all of their fears. It is a request to set aside yourself, your preoccupation with yourself, the things that you even don't like about yourself, your dislikes, your dreams. It's an invitation. Come, follow me so that you will know Christ as Lord of your life. Now, really interesting that Jesus picks these fishermen why would he do that? Well, there's some, let me uh, point out some qualities about fishermen that Jesus is going to capitalize on. You know, some of the qualities that make for good fishermen are going to make for very good fishers of men. First of all, you've got to have, if you're a fisherman, you've got to have something called patience. Okay? If you don't have patience, you probably don't fish, right? Because why? Hey, I cast three times, I catch anything. What's up with this, Right? You know, okay, not all of us are Alton Jones, okay? We're all professional bass fishermen, and every time we cast, we catch something. And even for Alton, it doesn't always work that way, right? Okay? You gotta have patience because, you know, in the ministry, you rarely see quick results when you're working with others. You know what else you have to have? You have to have perseverance. You gotta learn to overcome the battle of discouragement so that you try again. That's true of fishing, but let me assure you, it's especially true in the ministry. There's all sorts of weights and things that discourage you. Like Howard Hendricks said, half the battle is just showing up, just making sure that you're there. And so you have to be, you have to have perseverance. Fishermen have lots of perseverance. Learning to try again. You know what else you have to have if you're going to be a good fisherman? You've got to have courage. I mean, your little boat and your little net. It's so small compared to the sea that you're in or those giant waves, the elements that can be so strong in the wind. You've got to have courage. And if you're going to be a fisher of men, you've got to have courage to stand up to the battles that you're going to face. Let me tell you, it is always dangerous to tell people the truth. OK, there are people that don't like that. There is all sorts of challenges, financial challenges, people challenges, resource challenges. There's everything coming at people coming apart. That seems it's hard to shepherd people and guide people to maturity. You're going to have to have courage. These men have learned something about courage. Jesus is going to take them to a whole new level. Let me tell you something else about fishermen. They are hard working. If you're a lazy fisherman, you don't catch a lot of fish and you certainly don't make money enough to support your family. If you're going to be in the ministry, you've got to be hardworking. Professional fishermen, man, they're not just sitting around waiting for the next thing to happen. They are mending their nets. They're casting their lines. They're working on their equipment. The other thing about fishermen, these commercial fishermen, you have to learn how to work together. Okay? You've got to learn how to be on a team to be reliable and to rely on others. Same is true in the ministry. No lone ranger ministry or missionary. And let me give you one other thing that you have to have to be a good fisherman and to be a good fisher of men. You've got to have faith. You have to be willing 
to go even when you cannot see the fish and believe that somehow God is going to provide the catch. You have to walk out there and trust and go even when it doesn't make sense. And you know what? These men, through their experiences that God had given them, had started to develop these characteristics. But now in the hand of the master, if they would follow him, Jesus would take these characteristics and turn them to become the men who would be called the apostles and who would help lay the foundation for the church. Let me tell you something. God oftentimes uses our past experiences and training to prepare us for his future work through our lives. In fact, it's happening right now. Experiences, circumstances, difficulties, your job are actually are probably being used by God to prepare you for further work that he has for you. And these men had obviously learned the lessons. They had traits now in the master's hand revealed to him through the power of his spirit. Why they would accomplish the ministry that he said they would do. They would become fishers of men. Well, notice what they did. He says, follow me, verse 19, and I will make you fishers of men. Verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now, like I told you, this wasn't the first time they'd heard and seen Jesus. Perhaps they'd heard the call before. I want you to follow me. This wasn't this wasn't something like it's just a slip, just quick decision. Like, OK, I'll just do that. This is probably something that they thought a lot about. They prayed about. They thought about the costs that would be involved in following Jesus. But when he called and said, come, follow me, they responded. Well, they immediately left their nets and they followed him. In verse 21, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. They're mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. They had also, like Peter and Andrew, they'd seen Jesus, heard about him. They too perhaps had been pondering the call. Jesus comes and he says, now men, I want you to come. I want you to follow me. And they left their nets and their boat, and they began this, this yielding in their life to do whatever Jesus would ask. They were going to be completely united with him. You know, these men would have never fulfilled God's plan for their lives had they not come to the point where they were willing to leave it all to follow him. You know, we're very familiar with these guys, but I want you to see them as fishermen I want you to see them with their hands dirty with slimy fish and discouraged because of a night they didn't catch anything and busted nets and employees you can't count on. You know, Peter, the impetuous, this guy actually ends up being the leader of the twelve. His brother, Andrew, he's the one who's always bringing people to Jesus. James, do you know who this guy is? Yeah, James, dad, Zebedee. James ends up being the first man, the first of the apostles to die for his belief in Christ. Jesus is calling him to to die for the sake of the cause. And John, his brother, 
John is the one who's referred to, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. You see, John had realized that when you follow Jesus, when you accept his call, you experience the depths of his love in ways that you never would when you're resisting or saying, no, I'm going to I'm going to do things my own way. You see, these men had no earthly idea how great a heavenly work God would accomplish through their lives. And they had no idea what it's going to look like. They simply responded to the call. Follow me. What will you do? Will you follow Jesus? What are the things that would keep you today from just saying, Lord, I I will follow you, whatever, whatever you ask, wherever you might want me to go. Are there some nets or some boats that kind of have you rather distracted and rather enamored as you're floating and cruising through life? You know, for some for some of us, it could be things. We like things. We want more things. and We want to have a job that makes more money so we can buy more things. And it's all about things and bling and cars and nice houses. And it's all about things for us. You know, is there something that may be prohibiting you like things and stuff that would say, Lord, I give this all to you, whatever you want for it, whether you want me to give it or to keep it and use it as resources for your kingdom. But I want to follow you. What, by the way, at the end of your life, what do you want to look back upon? A bunch of slimy fish that you collected and bought and purchased? Or would you want to look back and see, wow, God used me in some pretty significant ways based on a response to his call? Maybe, maybe uh, some boats and nets in our lives might be some people. Maybe there's someone that you just really like. But you know that if you were to follow Jesus and respond to his call, as he calls us in the scripture, that, that relationship would have to change because that person or that, those group of people are always taking you in the wrong direction. And then follow Jesus would mean to say, I, I can no longer go there. Maybe it's someone that you actually don't like. Maybe you know that to follow Jesus, you would have to forgive the person or the people that have really hurt you. And so you're wrestling with that because you know that to follow Jesus is to go his way and his heart of love is going to be worked out in yours. And and you'll have to be involved in the process of restoring that relationship and forgiving those people. Maybe maybe it's just your plans. Have you ever thought about this, that Jesus might have a better plan than you do? Think about it. God, the creator, the one who made you, designed you, given you all the gifts, your intelligence, what you look like, everything about you. He has a plan for your life. Do you think you got a better one? Jesus gives the invitation. Follow me. You know, one of the things that I'm really impressed upon, and I've spent a lot of time just mulling this passage over, is that these men came to a point where they immediately responded. They left it all. And they said, Lord, whatever you want, we'll follow you. Notice what they didn't do. They didn't make excuses. They didn't go, oh, Jesus, not now. You know what? This is really not a good time. Why don't we try this in about five years? OK, things will be better for me economically. Let me get some more of these servants in place here. No, they don't do that at all. They just simply respond to Jesus call. Follow him. You know what these men did? These men modeled the mindset of everyone who comes to truly follow the master. And that is simply this. I will do as you direct so that you may develop your desires in me. That's what it means to follow Christ. 
I will do as you direct so that you will develop your desires in me. And for these men, that's what they do. They are willing to follow him. Now, when it comes to following Jesus, every one of his people are presented with this passage here for this reason. To put us at a point in our life where we're saying, Lord, I am willing to yield all to you. You are Lord and master and I am your servant. Now, there are a few people that God calls to serve in a a vocational ministry capacity, like a pastor or a missionary. And when that happens, that is distinctly clear. It is affirmed by the body of Christ. There is a matching of gifts with a matching of desire. Those things become very evident. But God equally calls all of his people to some sort of vocation, some role, whether it be a homemaker, dad, grandparents, some sort of career, some sort of occupation. But he calls us to follow him. And so what it means to follow Jesus is say, Lord, I yield this all to you. I want you to be Lord of my life and whatever you call to me, whether it's in my home, as my, in my family, in my job, as a student, as a coach, as a mechanic, as a doctor, as a professor. I am your man. It is a, is a yielding. And it's not just kind of a one-time thing. I have found it is an ongoing process. Try this for a week. When you get up, acknowledge the Lord and to say, Lord, I am yours. I yield it all to you. And see how differently your day is lived, recognizing that you are the master's man or the master's woman. Joseph Stuhl writes of a good friend of his who is the founder and chairman of the board of, of a large leading bond house in Chicago. And as a CEO there, this particular man uh, ran a Bible study every Friday morning. Now, he was approaching age 65. Joseph actually got together with his friend for lunch and he kind of asked him this question. So, hey, I bet you're ready to retire, huh? Sell the business and retire. You know, this man already was wealthy, but to sell his business, there would be anything the man wanted, any dream he'd ever want to have. This guy could have. So he's fully expecting the guy was highly anticipating his retirement. He was shocked when he got this reply. Well, actually, Joe. I don't have any plans to sell my business because I know someday I'll have to. But I know this. The day I sell my business is the day I lose my ministry for Jesus Christ. You see, this man had a Bible study. And in that Bible study, there had been dozens of individuals who had actually come to a saving relationship with Christ. This guy had a ministry among all of his employees. He saw himself as a conduit of blessing. He got the picture because he was the Lord's man. He had responded to the call, follow me. And so he did right where the Lord had placed him. And so that's what we do. That is, by the way, the Savior's strategy is to equip disciples, to equip them to, first of all, come to Jesus and accept his call to follow him and then to equip them to live a life of maturity in Christ. It is the strategy of the Savior. It is what he's doing now. And we're seeing it at the very beginning where he's simply calling these men, follow me. I can just tell you from my own personal life. I actually thought I'd be a business guy. Okay, my undergrad degrees they are in business. I thought I was going to be a business guy, maybe start a business. I had some good ideas. I still have one that I think is a really good idea. 
But you know what? There came a point in my life where I had to just yield it all to him. My dreams, my plans. I had to come to a point where I said, God, I want what you want more than what I want. And it was a big internal struggle. I think some of you can relate. Let me just tell you what this looked like. I think some of you have heard of a guy by the name of Bill Bright. He has since passed away, but he is the founder of a group, a massive international ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ. Many of our missionaries from Fellowship Bible Church are a part of this mission agency. And on one occasion, when I heard Bill Bright speaking at a Christmas conference with all these college students there, he makes this appeal and says, if you are willing to follow Jesus Christ anywhere, to do anything that he wants, if you are willing in your heart, I want you to stand so we're packed out. We're at this huge hotel. This conference room is just massive. Chairs filled with college students everywhere. He gives this call. And all of these people just start standing up. And I'm sitting there wrestling with it. Wrestling with what I want, my dreams. And yet I've come to Christ a couple of years ago. And I uh, tell you, I actually sat I could not get up because I couldn't say with all uh, clarity in my heart. I will follow you, Lord. Well, next year they had a Christmas conference. I show up there, kind of work during the day, show up for the talks at night because Bill Bright speaking and God, a fascinating communicator, man. God been doing some work in my heart. I started to grow as a Christian. Here's Bill Bright. And at the end of his message, I'm like, wow, this sounds vaguely familiar. If anybody is willing to follow Jesus Christ anywhere in this world to do anything that he might ask, that your life is his, I'd ask you to stand with me. And all these people started standing up. And I could. And I did. I just laid it all there before him, Lord, whatever you would want. That's what I want. You know, we all need a clear time sense in our life that we've yielded all up to him. We are following him. And I'd like to ask, do you have that kind of clarity in your life? Who or what are you living for? Really? Stacks of stuff. You really think it's going to matter to you in eternity? Your dreams, do you think they're better than God's? His plan? And you're going to take yours over that? You see, if today the Spirit of God has brought you to a crossroads and you hear Jesus' clear words, verse 19, follow me, I will, I'll do it, I'll make you fishers of men, I'll transform your life. But you've got to follow me. You've got to yield me. If you say, I will not, then who will you follow? C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, writes this, quote, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self. 
but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but have it out. Hand over the whole natural self. All the desires which you think are innocent, as well as the ones you think are wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself and my own will shall become yours. Christ doesn't want part of you. He doesn't want some of your gifts, some of your time, some of the finances that he's given you. By the way, you're a steward of those things. He wants all of you fully yielded. Come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men, but you must follow me on my terms. You are not going to strike up some sort of agreement. All right, Jesus. Well, you know, you got a good deal getting me and, and I'll really help you out here. No. Come, follow me. That may mean some drastic changes in your life. Or that may mean some drastic new perspective in how you're living and going about what God's already called you to do. But the bottom line is, are you following him? Real interesting. On a lot of tombstones, you see the Lord is my shepherd. And really, it seems to be there in far more tombstones. You see the Lord is my shepherd than you do wise. If the Lord is indeed our shepherd, then there is a desire and a willingness to follow him. To follow his strategy of engaging the lost, of exhorting the people, of equipping the disciples. That is his strategy, and he calls us to follow him. And do you know that the ministry of Christ continues today with those who follow him? So I have just one question for you. Will you follow Christ? What is the Lord specifically calling you to do? Is there someone that you need to forgive is there something, someone you should be investing in, someone you should be giving to or giving uh, to the Lord in some respect? Are you to be praying? Or is there someone that's supposed to receive the gospel from your lips and your life? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What I'd like to do is I'd like, I'd like everybody just to bow your head. And with our heads bowed, and I'd like to ask if you just close your eyes. If today you are saying, I will follow you, Jesus, wherever you lead. You are the Lord of my life. And this is the first time you're doing that. Would you be willing just to put your hand up? This is the first time in your life you're saying, I'm willing to follow you. And then I'm going to ask, if you are here today and you are willing to follow Jesus wherever he may ask you to do, whatever you may need to go, whatever you are to do, perhaps this has been your response to him for some time. If you are willing to follow him, I would ask, would you stand with me? And I only want you to stand if this truly is your response to the Savior. For Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and this is one of the sacred moments in our church. You who have started a good work in us, you are bring it 
bringing it to completion and to perfection. Lord, whatever sin that we've perhaps involved ourselves in, perhaps made something more important than you. Lord, we lay it down at your feet and take it to the cross. And we once again experience cleansing. And Lord, our heart's desire is that we would follow you wherever you would lead, wherever you'd have us go. Whether that means perhaps some significant changes in how we live and how we give and what we say and what we do, or perhaps a new perspective on how we go about the careers, our jobs and the lives in our homes. Lord, we ask that you who said you will make it happen, that you would do it, that we as individuals and as a church, we would be fishers of people and that you would use our church for the proclamation of the gospel, that through the ministry of fellowship, that you would draw hundreds, thousands, perhaps even one day millions of people to the Savior because you are doing your work through us. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.